Hello, TTB community. I am Elliot Chibley, and here with me, as always, is the observant Robert DeMena. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and our own personal travel experiences. This week, we talk to Josh, the Wolverine Guerrero, and he is the creator of All Around Adventure. It's a travel blog, a podcast through which he shares his amazing tales uh, from all over the world. He talks to interesting travelers. But today we're talking to him about his personal hike. It's 1,200 miles through the northern, the frigid northern uh, Michigan state. Uh, he's doing it for veterans. He's doing it through um, a veteran archaeology project. And so we had a great conversation with him on this experience. Before we get into the episode, the travel tip of the week is bring a small, sm- small, 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 sm- <laughs> a small foldable bag within your bag. I do this for every trip as Elliot can uh, can back me up on. So I bring a small bag. It folds. It's good for a day bag. It's good for souvenirs. So if I travel with one backpack and I have this small bag inside, when I'm ready to go home, I can load it up with souvenirs and throw it under the seat of the airplane. Um, or like I said, during the day, it, it, it's great for a day bag. So I highly recommend it. If you Google small foldable backpacks on Amazon, a ton will come up. All right. So before we get into the conversation, check out some of the cool things we offer. The Traveler's Blueprint offers a travel journal and planner that is available for $7.99 on our website. It is a PDF, so you can fill it out online or in paper, and it is completely reusable. We also offer a Become Your Own Travel Agent five-part video tutorial. Part one is navigation, two is booking airfare, three blogs, research, and reviews, four itinerary building, and five safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. You can find that on our website, and it is $25. We also offer travel consulting. So for more information on that, go to our website and feel free to send us a DM on social media or an email. Lastly, you can join us, and if you want to, you can you can be a part of our Travel Around Table series. That's where we sit down with a group of of travelers, send us your email with your name, your website, and a few travel-related topics that you enjoy discussing, and we will get back to you. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Josh, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. <laughs> hey, gents. I'm glad to be here. I've been looking forward to chatting with you guys. Likewise, it's been a while, but we finally connected. So uh, rather than me trying to give all, and list all of your accolades, tell a little, bit, a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing right now. Right. Well, I'll try to uh, keep that as short and sweet as possible because I have a pretty extensive background, as you guys know. But uh, originally from a small town in rural Michigan, uh, you know, when I say small, I'm talking 1,100 people. Everybody knows everybody. Kind of got to be careful who you ask out on a date because y'all just might be related type of small town. <laughs> and uh, three weeks out of uh, high school, I joined the Marine Corps. This was maybe two to three years uh, after 9-11 had happened. And that was kind of one of the driving factors that really pushed me to uh, serve. And I was in the Marine Corps for four years, stationed in uh, North Carolina. But then after that experience, I came back to Michigan, tried to do the regular college student thing, got my bachelor's degree in elementary education. And at that point, I was kind of uh, having the travel bug because I had done a two-week study abroad to Japan. And uh, you know how it is, fellas. Once you travel once and go abroad once, 
you just get that bug and you get that curiosity going, you want to see more and more. And so I thought about how can I combine that with the skills that I just cultivated now that I'm a college grad. And so I decided to go into the Peace Corps and I was uh, stationed in the Gambia in West Africa for two years as a education volunteer there. And that whole experience just kind of set me down an entirely different path. I just, um, being immersed with a culture that was entirely different from my own, it got me really curious to see what other cultures are like around the world. And so I kind of started shifting my focus more towards anthropology and eventually dialed in on archaeology. And that led me to uh, York, England, where I studied to get my master's degree in field archaeology. And then coming home after I graduated from there, I've been uh, doing uh, professional archaeology ever since for nearly going on five years now, first with the Forest Service, and then I just wrapped up a stint with uh, the Park Service. And uh, now that I've wrapped up my stint with the Park Service, I am doing a 1,200-mile trek across my home state of Michigan, and this is to raise money for a nonprofit called American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, and they take veterans out to archaeological dig sites all around the world, and so that's pretty much my background in a nutshell and what I'm doing currently. All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about there, so let's <laughs> let's deconstruct it. So t- tell us about your current uh, trail hike. The it's You call it the Wolverine? Uh, Operation Wolverine Walk, you know, Operation just, Wolverine just Walk. I think yeah. it sounds kind of cool because uh, Michigan is known as the Wolverine State, which yes. I'm not sure why we're still hanging on to that name. There's not a whole lot of Wolverines around. Right. Michigan. I'm a Penn State. I'm a Penn State Nittany Lion and there's not too many Nittany Lions or just mountain lions left in Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, it still sounds cool, though. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, it's, it's, it's worth uh, hanging on to. And uh, that's actually what my trail name is. My trail name is Wolverine. You know, you'll hear it around uh, the hiking community, especially on long, more other long distance trails like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific mm-hmm. Crest Trail, Colorado Trail. A lot of people have uh, their trail names just to kind of help, uh, you know, it, they introduce themselves as their trail names and then other hikers and trail angels refer to them by their trail names, too. So mine is uh, Wolverine. And so I decided to take this on as a, like I said, a fundraiser for a nonprofit that helps uh, veterans, um, American Veterans Archaeological uh, Recovery. And initially, this was going to be, I was looking at maybe doing a uh, South America expedition as a fundraiser. And this was planned for uh, the summer of last year, but I think we can all pretty much assume how that went. (laughs) So I um, shifted it to uh, this summer. And then once again, we were still kind of uh, reeling the effects of this microscopic enemy that we've all been facing. And I still wasn't able to make it down to South America, but I knew I had to do something. And so I decided to shift it to a domestic um, expedition instead. And so um, I was looking at other places I can do here in the U.S. And eventually I found my way back to my home state after a conversation with my brother. Um, I was telling him about how I'm going to need to shift my plans. And he was telling me about the North Country Trail which is the longest trail in the U.S. It starts in North Dakota, and it extends all the way to uh, Vermont. And the Michigan section of it is uh, the longest section of the entire trail. The entire trail is 4,800 miles long, but the Michigan section is just under 1,200. So out of the eight states that the trail goes through, this is the longest section. So therefore, I decided, okay, well, it looks like I'm walking across my entire home state. And I knew this was going to give me a chance to see Michigan like I never have before. I mean, even though I was born and raised here, there's a lot of the state that I haven't seen. And it's um, a very beautiful and I think an underrated state, in my opinion. There's just so much to see here. And I definitely have experienced that uh, thus far. 
So I uh, got in touch with uh, my friend who is the CEO of the nonprofit, told him what I was doing. I set up a GoFundMe page to bring in donations. And what was most important to me was that I knew that I wanted to self-finance this entire trek. I wanted to, I wanted donors to be rest assured that any donations that they do make, it, it goes directly to the nonprofit. I don't see any of this money because, you know, it's just, I don't want people to think that they're paying for me to do this epic adventure. You know, it's just, I made sure I set aside a good nest egg so I could keep myself afloat for a few months. So that way all donations go directly towards uh, helping veterans. And it's been going pretty well so far. We just uh, made it over $5,000 raised, which I'm very pleased with. Awesome. And, you know, very gracious for all who, who've donated. But then that started uh, back in August uh, 22nd is when I stepped off right where the trail meets the Wisconsin, Michigan state line. And I've already completed all of the upper peninsula. And now I'm just over halfway through the lower peninsula, a couple hundred miles left, and then I'll be done. And have you been doing this alone? Uh, yes, alone, uh, pretty much uh, all the way up into uh, this point. I think I may have a couple of people uh, join me here and there uh, as I wrap up these last couple hundred miles, which I think will be kind of nice, just a little bit of a, a change of pace. Initially, yeah. I was kind of thinking, you know, since I've been doing this solo that I was just going to finish solo. But, you know, this, the people who want to join me are trail angels, meaning that they're people that are going to actually help me. They're going to like either host me for a couple of nights inside or they're going to give me rides here and there. And if they say they want to, to, to join me on the trail, you know, the least I could do is say, yep, come on, let's let's go um, explore this trail together. Yeah, absolutely. So no dog either. No dog, no, no dog, no, no right. dog. I, I would say a dog would be kind of nice having, um, yes, a furry companion. You know, I mean, I, frankly, we don't deserve dogs. Dogs are just too amazing. <laughs> but um, there they have are. been a there have been a couple of times where I've gotten animals along the way that want to start following me, whether they be uh, people's dogs. If I walk past houses or cows, if they see me and they start, you know, trotting along their fence to, <laughs> to, to come along with me. Yeah, I wish I could bring them along, but. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> and and so you've been doing this uh, in the winter months, and as anybody from the United States, I'm sure knows, it's pretty cold up there. How yes. have you been faring uh, in northern Michigan, in Michigan in general, in these during these winter months? Well, it's been quite the adjustment because before I came up here to Michigan to do this trek, I was actually living down in Florida for the past three and a half years. And so, um, you know, during the wintertime, it could be down in the 70s there. So I think my blood kind of thinned out a little bit. And, yeah. it, and it definitely took quite the adjustment to get back up here and uh, fair winter. But it's been kind of slowly, gradually gotten colder over time as I've done this. You know, mind you, I've been out on the trail for three months now. So I've been kind of sort of been able to deal with the progression of it getting colder and colder as, as I've been hiking. Because um, like when I started back in uh, late August, of course, it was still summer. So it was shorts and t-shirts pretty much all day. And of course, I had my cold weather clothes uh, in my pack as I was going. So once it started dropping, I can start sort of layering up. But I will say the temperature dropped much faster than what I had anticipated that it would because it was pretty much almost like straight from summer weather and temperatures and it didn't seem like we had much of a fall as I've been as I've been hiking. It's like it's like almost like we skipped fall and just went straight from uh, summer to winter. And I blame it on everyone who started raving about Christmas as soon as Halloween was over, because the day after Halloween, 
when I got back out on the trail again, it started snowing and it snowed a lot. And that was because I kept seeing all these memes of like, now that Halloween's over, you know, start busting out that Mariah Carey song. And yeah, and yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a big debate on that, whether or not uh, Christmas music can start on November 1st or right after Thanksgiving. I, I say after Thanksgiving. At least I wish I'm that was you. the case. So that so that yeah. way I don't, you know, freeze my butt off out on the trail this quickly. <laughs> yeah. My wife yeah. is of the opinion that you can play Christmas music as soon as it hits November first. <laughs> but she'll also be willing to play it any time throughout the year, often. Uh, yes, as well too. Yeah. No. <laughs> so so all right, okay. So I mean the good thing I guess is or one of the good things, you don't encounter as much wildlife in the winter. Um what type of wildlife is up in, is in Michigan and I would think so, right? Well, hibernating bears and yeah, 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 hibernating uh, bear, bears uh, for sure. And now, as far as wildlife is concerned, um, I don't know if I'd say I've been lucky or unlucky. Um, haven't seen these. Uh, like, I haven't really run into any like bears or, or anything like that. I have seen like bear scat and fresh bear uh, bear prints uh, in the sand, uh, mostly in the Upper Peninsula. And I do kind of say, unfortunately, because there, there's a weird thing with me, fellas. It's uh, Anytime I see a very powerful apex predator, especially out in the wild, I get really, really uh, excited just because there's that level of respect there because you know how powerful of a creature it is. And like when I was living down in Florida, for instance, every single time I saw an alligator in the wild, I just look at this thing with just so much respect and admiration because you know like that's a dinosaur i mean that those creatures have been around for millions of years and they've never had to evolve just because they were made perfect right from the beginning and it's the same thing when i see bears too because they're powerful creatures uh in their own right they haven't seen any bears yet there were a couple of nights when i was sleeping in my tent and i would actually hear wolves howl in the distance because there are wolves uh in the upper peninsula as well and lots of times where I've heard like uh, coyotes yelping in the distance uh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did see a moose once. Uh, Ooh, this was a little bit. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Moose are amazing to see. They were a little bit. This one was in the Upper Peninsula near the city of Marquette. Um, so a lot of moose uh, in, in that area. But besides that, though, it's just been like deer and a lot of your tiny critters, you know, yeah. chipmunks, squirrels, right. th- th- right. <laughs> things right, along right, those right. lines. All right. So I'm I'm on the Michigan's DNR map. Um, is this the Iron Bell Trail that you're following for the most part? It's the the North Country Trail North is Country. the one that I'm following. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that seems so awesome. So yeah. the, so you're taking a break right now um, between trail sessions, and you said you have a few hundred miles left once you get back on. Yeah, that's right. Um, I got off the trail to start my Thanksgiving break uh, in the town of Rockford, Michigan, where if anyone sees it on a map, it's just a little bit northeast of uh, the city of Grand Rapids. So pushing a little bit more towards uh, the western side uh, of the state. And when I get back on that trail uh, tomorrow, yeah, I'll maybe have 200 miles and some change left until I, I finish up. You know, there I'm it's hard to say whether or not I'm super excited about these last uh, couple hundred miles, because at that point now, I've more or less made it through all of the major uh, national forests and state forests and state parks and national parks that Michigan has. Most of them are in the Upper Peninsula or the upper portion of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. And so I've more or less made it through all of those. So I think what I have to look forward to from this point on is a lot of road walking, so, um, which it isn't all that exciting. I mean, it's, uh, 
it can be easier going hiking wise because roads are usually uh, pretty flat and open uh, and you don't have to worry about like tripping over roots and, you know, hidden stuff underneath uh, leaf fall or, or anything like that in the woods. But at the same time, I would much rather prefer being in the woods and just being immersed in the woods and not having to worry about traffic and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm, I, I may have a lot of road walking to look forward to. And it also makes it challenging, though, because that means less opportunities for me to pitch a tent. So chances are I'm going to have to probably plan this to either stay with trail angels or stay at hotels for the rest of, of this trek, just because there's not really going to be hardly any places for me to pitch my tent because of course going along roads, that's all private property. Yep. And so, um, so I'm thinking I'm probably going to be doing this trip without bringing my tent and my sleep system with me. Okay. So later bag. Go ahead, Elliot. How many miles have you been doing per day? Roughly. On average, I'd say close to around 15 miles per day. Uh, some days will be like less, of course. Uh, what I typically like to do is um, I break it up in a series of phases. And this is just how I like to hike uh, long distance trails like this. I mean, other people, they'll have different ways of setting it up. But I usually like to do uh, four or five days worth of hiking, followed by a zero day, you know, a day off to do rest and recovery, do some laundry and what have you. And so I usually try to make the higher mileage days at the start of each phase and then kind of sort of taper off as they get closer and closer to taking um, a break. So on average, yeah, I'd say I'm doing about 15 uh, miles a day. And that's how I planned out the rest of my route with that in mind that I'll be doing about 15 miles um, a day. But I think like the shortest day that I did was maybe like seven miles. And then I think the, and the longest day I did was 20 miles. Okay. So it's usually just uh I guess where I need to get to at a certain time, because I may think that at the end of a certain day, there's a, probably a campground that I want to get to. So I have to cover those right amount of miles. Or if I'm getting to a place where a trail angel is going to pick me up to either host me or, or drop me off somewhere else. So I, it, it may vary. Some days I do have um, either set miles that I need to do, or if I know I'm just going to be pitching my tent a certain night, I'll just go as far as I can until it gets dark. So. I'm curious. I'm not, I'm not super familiar. I know the concept of trail angels, but I don't know how that actually, that coordination happens is, do you have full, uh, I guess, internet access, mobile access on the trail to make that coordination happen? For the most part. Yes. Uh, now much of my connections that I made with trail angels was done prior uh, to this. There is a Facebook group called, uh, it's like, Trail Angels of the North Country Trail or North Country Trail Trail Angels or something along those lines. But it's where, like, yes, the trail angels who all live within the vicinity of the North Country Trail who like to help hikers uh, as they go. You know, I just went in there and I just created a post saying, you know, who I was, what I'm doing, and when I plan to start and where I'll be in certain places at certain times. And then I just asked if anyone is willing and able to help me, please leave me a comment or shoot me a DM. And um, I got a lot of people who responded. And so it was uh, just one of those things where I was able to extend or find various people all within different sections of the trail that said that they'd be willing to help me once I made it to them. And uh, so that's really how that works. And, you know, to address your other question about whether or not I have good uh, service, for the most part, surprisingly enough, I actually have. 
there were a couple of spots uh, here and there, uh, especially in the Upper Peninsula, where AT&T, Verizon, or no matter how good your uh, service provider was, you just weren't going to get signal in some areas. And this was in places like the Porcupine Mountains, also in the Trap Hills, I didn't have uh, very good service. But you kind of just um, start making it towards some towns and other areas, you start to get service again. And that's how I was able to just sort of let trail angels further on down the trail, let them know that I was going to make it to their area within certain time frames. Cause you know, once I start going along the trail, that's when I actually would start getting a better sense of, you know, it'll maybe take three to four days to get to this town or that town or, or what have you. So it's, that's how it's been working. And a lot of times it's just, just going with the flow, improvising a lot of times, um, you know, cause some days I may need to take a break sooner than what I anticipated um but it's just been working out pretty good so far i mean obviously i made it this far <laughs> yeah, already, yeah so well it seems so, like yeah yeah it seems like you've, you've done the hard part have you ever done a hike like this before no i i, I haven't I, I think the furthest uh hike that i've done was like maybe five six days in isle royal with my brother that was the the longest backpacking trip that, that i've done and of course you know i'm now i'm doing four uh four or five uh days at a time back to back to back to back yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah that's how I, that's how i try to look at it because um you know i think if you just look at it as one big long continuous hike that could be a bit of a spirit buster right there thinking about how far you have to go but i just try to think to myself okay don't worry about all those other phases just yet just worry on the phase that you're on right now yeah, like get through this phase and then think about the next phase that you have uh, after that you know break it up into bite-sized chunks because if yeah. you just look at it as like this one big formidable thing, that's can be spirit crushing right there. Yeah. I think that's good life life advice in general. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, so so what I do want to get into, um, Elliot, unless you have questions specifically about the hike, I wanted to kind of get into the whole point of the hike yeah. and rehabilitation archaeology and how it's helping veterans. I find c- combining archaeology and and veteran affairs unique. I find that to be interesting. Um, I'm sure most people are familiar with the the idea that this sort of this human bonding experience, this tribal experience is what makes the military so powerful and what a lot of military members um, desire once they're out, right? And so, Josh, break down what this this organization actually is and if you have information on how the two came to be together. Yeah, well um – I, I first was uh, came acquainted with the founder and CEO of American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, or we'll just we'll say Avar uh, for short. And uh, his name is Stephen Humphreys. He's a former Air Force captain. And while I was studying in England at the University of York, he was just a little bit north of me studying for his PhD at the University of Durham. And uh, he connected with another organization there in the UK that was doing this. And so he decided to start like a a branch of his own for American uh, veterans. And I was kind of one of like the early recipients from AVAR bringing veterans out onto digs. Uh, uh, Stephen was doing a dig in uh, the small town called Moulton, where he was uh, excavating the site of an old uh, Roman uh, military fort. And so that's, so I was able to go out and, uh, work on that dig, get some very necessary uh, field experience, which I think really kind of helped me get a good foothold in my own career uh, as an archaeologist. And then when he started bringing this concept, this idea of getting veterans out into the field back to the U.S., 
you know, he's had a lot of uh, successful digs uh, since. But yeah, just to kind of go back uh, to your point, Bob, when you kind of talk about the brotherhood and the camaraderie, you know, it's very strong in the military. And that's something that many veterans uh, really, you know, miss once they uh, leave the leave active service, you know, they may go back to their hometowns or someplace else where they may go to school, and they just simply may not feel that same connection with, uh, you know, people, you know, outside of the military. And, uh, and that's one thing that really leaves lots of veterans uh, astray. And that's a great thing that rehabilitation can offer these veterans is because you're working alongside other veterans, getting to meet them, you know, you've all had similar experiences that you could talk about uh, together with, which is very important. And also what rehabilitation archaeology does, it, it kind of gives veterans like a sense of purpose again, because when they're on active duty in the military, they know what their mission is. It's very apparent to them what it is that they're doing, and they could feel that sense that they're doing a duty and that they're working towards something. But again, when they leave the military, they may not have their next mission in sight. And so again, it could lead them astray. But getting out in the field, doing archaeology and digging in the field, you can actually see the tangible results from your work. You can actually see these excavation units that are digging. They can see themselves getting deeper and deeper. They can see the collections of artifacts that they were able to pull from the where from where they're digging. And some of these artifacts, depending on where they are, they could be hundreds, if not thousands, of years old. And to know, and for them to realize that these artifacts that have been lost to the world for that length of time until they found them themselves and are able to reconnect it with the modern world so that way we could learn about our past that's a, that's a great you know mission and a great thing for them to focus on uh there as well and then also is just what avar tries to do they try to make this um a, like a program trying to set these veterans on a trajectory to do something a after uh, the dig is over it's not so much hey, just come out and do this cool thing for a couple of weeks, and then we're just going to plop you right back to where uh, you left off. It's try to hopefully get them on a trajectory where they'll have an idea of what to do after uh, the dig. And for some of them, that may be very well trying to pursue a career in archaeology. And I've actually connected with a few other uh, who are now professional archaeologists who've gone to Avar digs uh, before. So yes, there is that amazing travel and adventure aspect that comes with going on an archaeological dig, especially in some of the recent digs that Avar has done. Like they were out in the south of England this past summer, where they were digging the site of a, where a crashed a B-24 Liberator bomber plane was, Whoa. and they were excavating that. And then they recently just came back from Sicily, where they were excavating the crash site of a crashed um, P-38 Lightning fighter plane from World War II. I mean, that's exciting. That's exciting stuff. Yeah, and that's yeah. a very, that's a very great adventure right there. But either way, yeah, it's to try to set these veterans up for success following their dig activities. And if that is, um, again, archaeology, well, hey, they just got some uh, field experience. They made some valuable connections. They have references to put on uh, their CVs. Or if it's something they want to do entirely, well, again, at least they got character references to, you know, again, put on their CV, who can vouch for them and, you know, attest to their work, their work ethic and, and so on and so forth. So, so those are just, you know, a few of the, the, the benefits that come from doing rehabilitation archaeology, or I'd say those are the ones that stand out the most. And is there any kind of pre prereqs for a military individual to actually join AVAR? 
None, none that I'm aware of. It's That's um, awesome. they, 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 there's there's an application um, that veterans can go and and fill out on uh, Avar's website, American Veterans Archaeology org. I think, I think that that's, that's mm. what it is. I'll, you know, hopefully ask you guys to put that in the show notes. We yeah. ask if any yeah. veteran, if any veterans are, uh, you know, either watching this video or listening to, uh, to the audio. Yes. You can head over there and then you can apply if you are interested in taking uh, part on a dig and, you know, their AVAR staff has been really, really busy. They're coordinating, you know, a lot of digs in the future, you know, a lot of exciting stuff is going on and they've also um, teamed up with, the, the Defense POW and MIA Accountability Agency, which is a federal agency whose sole purpose it is, is to try to find, um, you know, those who are missing in action and haven't been recovered yet. And that's an AVARS teamed up with them. And that was actually a joint uh, collaboration with the recent uh, excavations for, for those down planes that I told you guys about. So. Okay. So they, they got they got a lot going on. Uh, yeah, that's really cool here. to tie that. I mean, the military aspect with the archaeology, and then tie the archaeology back to the military. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, those World War II sites. That that has to be incredible for anybody to to experience. Let alone people who actually experience the military as well. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Now, can you speak to any archaeological sites in the United States? I think the one that they are focused on the most right now is Saratoga in New York, which is a Revolutionary War uh, b- battlefield site. But as far as like other ones that they have uh, coming up, um, I'm not sure. I, I think they're trying to do an- another uh, take back to Saratoga because, you know, I think that being a Revolutionary War site, it's a pretty expansive area yeah. that I think they're yeah, having yeah. to work with. So I think that's going to be an ongoing one for a while, I'm sure. Wow. Revolutionary War. Uh, you know, uh, and what, what do you find at some of these? Like, what would you find at the Revolutionary War site? Well, you can find a, a variety of things. I mean, um, I haven't personally myself been on a Revolutionary War site, but I have done uh, some excavation work on uh, Civil War sites. And, you know, being a battlefield site, you know, you may find some some munitions. Like, I found uh, a couple of mini balls uh, myself. <laughs> I've also found uh, some unexplored uh, ordnance. There was an artillery shell that had that I uh, that was recovered when I was out wow. on a, a Civil War site, and uh, we actually had to get the bomb squad in for that one. So that was uh, <laughs> kind of exciting. Um, we did. I did find a bayonet wedged in a tree. Like, uh, well, how I think this had happened. I think maybe a soldier dropped this bayonet. And then the tree kind of sort of grew right there and the roots kind of like swallowed uh, the bayonet because we actually had to use a chainsaw to, to, to cut it up. So, um, (laughs) so to get, so to get back to your question, you know, there's a chance you can find some munitions um, likely. And um, you know, you may find maybe bits of, of uniform and and things along those lines uh, too. You know, you might find like some, maybe like some ordnance from uniforms or belt buckles, or maybe like pieces uh, from a toolkit or, or something mm-hmm. along those lines too. So those are the, at least that's been the type of stuff I found from a civil war site. So I would imagine that'd probably be what you may likely find on a revolutionary war site as well. And is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Enjoy 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code TTB at manscaped.com. 
Do not travel to the Netherlands or anywhere for that matter with untamed nether regions. Elliot and I do not, and we bring this with us on our trips. On the Traveler's Blueprint, we promote concise travel planning, and part of that planning is making sure you pack appropriately. The Lawnmower 4.0 is lightweight, has a travel lock, a light for close shaving, and a battery length that will last long into your trips. You got it. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TTB at manscaped.com. Your, Your balls, balls will, will thank, thank you. you. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, so I know you do a podcast as well called All Around Adventure. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the All Around Adventure uh, podcast, it's um, a mix of uh, travel and uh, self-development where, you know, I'll tell stories from my own travels and adventures, but then I'll also try to invite other travelers onto my show to, uh, to do the same. And it's just, uh, you know, hear their stories and to extrapolate some of the life lessons that they've learned along the way. Because as you guys know that every time you go out on an adventure and travel somewhere, you know, you don't come back the same person as you were before you left. You know, you learn a lot of valuable life lessons, whether it's from interacting with different cultures or sometimes just even getting out of your comfort zone too. And I'm sure we all kind of have our stories when we've gotten a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> out there in the world, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, and on uh, a bit of an unfriendly encounter with a local, or maybe we get food poisoning from trying from trying some exotic foods, or you know your vehicle your vehicle is uh, down out in the middle of nowhere, and you're not sure if you're going to be able to get it fixed. You know we've all have a misadventure, but it's experiences like that that shape us for the better, in my opinion. And also they make for the funnest stories. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So that's what my, my show really entails. It's just to really kind of share these travel experiences and the life lessons that have been learned uh, along the way. And it's all in hopes to just not only help uh, listeners better their own lives from the lessons that we say, but also hopefully maybe encourage them to get out in the world themselves and, uh, you know, get themselves in the thick of it and uh, see what they can learn about themselves along the way. I like it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, we, we absolutely agree. Our, our podcast is similar right i mean i would say it's pretty pretty similar to that what are some of your highlight real experiences adventures around the world <laughs> oh wow um you know where 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 do, where do i begin um let's see you know one that, that comes to mind uh, right offhand was probably going back to my very first international experience and that was to uh japan you know, I mean, I, I've been to Canada before that, but, you know, I'm from Michigan. I don't really count Canada as <laughs> uh, an international experience. It's just right across the bridge. So I don't really mm -hmm. uh, count that. So I went to uh, Japan and this was part of a two week uh, faculty led study abroad trip that I took during my last semester um, at college. Excuse me. And um, I didn't really need the credit. I just wanted to go to Japan. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, so I went on this trip and uh, my professor, who I just simply call sensei, uh, he had lived there for five years, like uh, when he was going to college himself or around that age. And uh, so he spoke the language fluently and he spent that whole time with um, a woman who was hosting him. And so he actually took us to uh, the village that he lived in and took us to her house uh, one day so we can kind of, you know, see where, where he was. Now, this woman and where he lived was a village uh, near the uh, city of Okayama, right next to uh, this mountainside. So it was just a small village. It took us a little while to get to it. And um, my sensei, he told us while we were all at uh, this woman's house, he says, hey, I'm just going to go 
take a walk just to kind of retrace my steps a little bit. And if anyone wants to join me, you know, I'm leaving in a few minutes. So, you know, a small handful of us decided to go. Everyone else kind of sort of stayed because, like I said, we it took us a little bit to, to get to this village. And so he's leading us around the village and he takes us to this trailhead, to this trail that goes uh, into these woods. And so we're going down this trail and, you know, it kind of just weaves and wobs a little bit uh, through the woods. And then suddenly it opens up to this big opening in the forest. And right in the middle of this opening is a shrine. And I swear this whole area, guys, it looked like it was something that was just plucked right out of like the 17th century. Like it had, like it had not changed in like a hundred years. Like we just walked through a portal to a hundred years to hundreds of years ago. It was just such an amazing thing. And I, and we were the only ones there. We had this whole place to ourselves. And I just remember telling myself, no tourist that comes to Japan will ever see this. Like this is all for us right now. And I just remember, and I don't know like what it was, but it's just that experience stands out in my mind so much because it looked like something from one of those old like samurai movies or something like that. It was yeah. just, it was just so amazing. And then, um, you know, going from there and seeing the rest of the village, you know, you see a lot of other cool things too. You know, people are really friendly. You know, you see like vending machines right next to a mountain. It was really cool <laughs> <laughs> there too. So yeah, it's just, that that moment just stands out in my mind so much just because it was kind of just surreal uh, yeah. you know and then you know besides that though some of my other uh, ama amazing highlights too um i definitely have to say going through the sahara desert um on camelback was an amazing experience too and then also the night that, that yeah we just, so we just did that um last month which is pretty amazing is. and then you guys know yeah. that being that far out there you have like zero light pollution during the um to oh, disrupt yeah. the night sky and i think for us we were pushing towards a full moon and it may as well have been daytime because that moon was just so bright out there in the desert uh too and then just getting on top of these sand dunes and just seeing an ocean of sand as far as the eye can see it was amazing but at the same time overwhelming because you know, there's very few places around, well, I wouldn't say there's few places, but I mean, definitely no places that I've been to up into that point. Right. Yeah. That's not traveled far, you know, easily. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So yeah, but besides that though, I mean, you know, there was a couple of other really cool moments. I can definitely tell you some of my uh, misadventures uh, too. Um, I did do a five day overland uh, hike in Scotland, uh, me and uh, a good friend of mine. And uh I just remembered looking at this big green open valley and it looks uh, so beautiful, but it was very deceptive because once you get down in that valley, you're pretty much uh, ankle deep in water the whole way across it. So, Whoa. so that was um, a little bit challenging. And so uh, trying to get to the end to um, what's called a Bothy, which is just a, um, you know, just like a, a, a shelter. It's a shack that's just kind of out there. There's no electricity. There's no plumbing or anything like that. It's just some place to get in from the elements. And so, that, so me and uh, my friend, we were trying to get there, and uh, you know, we had to try to uh, dry out our shoes and our socks as much as possible. And then there was also these things called midges, which are these just these tiny little insects that have swarms like so big and 
when you come in from outside, like if you have to step outside to use the bathroom and then all these midges swarm you, they're all over your clothes, they're all over everything. And so you pretty much have to spend like a few minutes just to try to swat them all off before you go back into your sleeping bag because you don't want to carry them into your sleeping bag, like at all. So, so, but that was um, a really uh, amazing experience. And once we made it there, we made it to um, Fort Williams which is where Ben Nevis is, which is the highest peak in the UK. And so that was um, day five where we uh, did a summit bit of that. And what was really interesting about that, like Ben Nevis itself compared to other places, uh, especially here in the US, it's really not that high. I can't tell you what the numbers are right offhand of how high it actually is. But even still in the UK, you get higher and higher and you got these incredible views of the landscape uh, in the distance. But then eventually you actually do get up into the clouds and then it's just nothing but like this gray void all the mm-hmm. way around the, the summit and you can't see anything below anymore. It was uh, another real weird and kind of surreal experience, but pretty cool nonetheless, though. Yeah, I've had similar experiences on mountaintops. It is a really weird feeling to be yeah. so high up and then to, to be to, to have your, your view of the ground distorted and I, I guess removed, really. Yeah. 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 It's like a bird or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that'd be pretty awesome. I would love to be able to fly. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we one all, day. I think we all would. I think like, you know, um, all travelers, if they were asked the question, what kind of superpower you'd have, they'd either pick flight or instant teleportation. Yeah. I'd probably go with the latter on that. <laughs> I would. I would uh, I don't, I don't, if, if it's well, picking a superpower, I may pick the ability to understand all languages interesting so like c3po basically is what yes you yeah without, be without, without the metal that 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 yeah i wouldn't mind being all gold though <laughs> <laughs> no just being able to travel and have that ability to talk to anyone anywhere at any time and just have that fluency you just yeah. be able to connect with the culture so much more yeah Not I, only I, that, I never thought actually, about that before so you can actually yeah. read the original uh like scripts and books and poems that don't necessarily translate. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like maybe you can get your hands on a copy of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, which yeah. is like the original, like uh, heroic story. Yeah, well, I love the what... like the original Odyssey because all of the translations just make it a little. They just feel clunky, and even when they try to change up the the fluidity of each, uh, I guess, line because it's supposed to be a, an epic poem, and mm-hmm. the translations just don't make it happen. Yeah, I, I remember I tried reading uh, Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was the same deal where, yeah, it's an epic poem, and I'm trying to, like, to keep up with it, but the this particular version that I was reading actually had like a couple of pages at um, towards like, it was either the beginning or the end of each canto about effectively what was it that uh, Dante was describing, like when he's talking about going through hell and seeing all the stuff that's happening, you know, it's worded very, again, in a interesting way yeah. in the actual story because you know this is 13th century we're talking about here yeah. <laughs> and so just to get the explanation okay so yeah this is effectively what he's seeing when he's in the circle of lust or you know the circle yep. of greed and, and everything so yeah, yeah I, I know i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, metaphors don't necessarily translate no translations yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well so josh this kind of maybe makes it go full circle but archaeology sort of aids in understanding and uncovering and gaining insight on ancient culture at least um right and and is that ultimately what 
what you, the, these veterans are doing? Like, are they taking to understanding these ancient cultures? Is that is that part of it? Well, you know, I certainly think that is, you know, one uh, one aspect of it. And, uh, you know, not only just gaining a, an understanding of, you know, cultures uh, from the past, but also just preserving, you know, the cultural heritage, you know, for the future, too, especially like, again, if they're doing dig sites here in America, you know, because veterans, you know, we, we all swear an oath, you know, to protect our country and our constitution. And, um, you know, and I think that's kind of another way that we're able to sort of do that by protecting our cultural heritage mm -hmm. and getting an understanding of what happened here uh, before. Now, when it comes to archaeology and history, um, you know, let's see, how do I want to word this? Um, like all of the like all of history covers the past, but not all the past is history, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and effectively, when I just say the word history, literally what I'm meaning is anything that involves written word. And so, um, so, any, so, so books of the past, documents from the past, that's all history right there because it was written down. But history, when we talk about the grand scope of humans being on the planet, actually does not extend back that far. We're talking about maybe 5,000 years with the uh, invention of cuneiform in ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern day Iraq. And so, but then millions or, or people have been here for aeons before then, before that. So to uh, get an understanding of what happened, what it was like for people before history, that's where archeology span really comes into play because there's no documents that go back that far. And, uh, but the material remains that people leave behind we can still find those out there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and even here in America, you know, we have a lot of like Native Americans that have inhabited this land, like, you know, far before, you know, contact from uh, with Europe. And so, um, and that's where archaeology comes into play uh, as well. And that's our, that's our prehistory uh, right there. So, yeah. so yeah, so, so anything before written word is considered prehistory, anything uh, when the start of written word and beyond and, and, to the present that's all history so um okay yeah, so that, yeah. that's kind of the distinction uh, between the two but yeah so to go back to your question is that you know a lot of veterans go into this you know very curious about the, the past and you know we've all kind of uh seen archaeology romanticized in many ways and you know franchises like indiana jones and the uncharted franchise you know tomb raider yep. and, and all of those you know a lot of those have been kind of like within like uh pop culture you know, for a long time now. And so um, to actually see what it's like in the real world, uh, you know, it can be exciting. It's we're definitely not, you know, punching bad guys in the face along, <laughs> along the way. But, you know, it's just, uh, again, being able to, um, you know, create that connection with the past, with, again, finding these artifacts that have been lost to the world for hundreds or th maybe even thousands of years and have them be the first one to do that in that time. And then maybe even be able to kind of create their own interpretations based on what they find. Like if they find like, let's say a shirt of pottery, you know, maybe that shirt of pottery was used to, uh, you know, collect berries out in the forest, or maybe it was used to cook something, you know, they can draw maybe interpretations based on what they find. Yeah. Really interesting. They're finding a lot of prehistory artifacts or, or human remains and footprints. I saw something recently where they found, was it a footprint? of an ancient hominid of some kind did either of you see that somewhere where at? yeah oh man it was it was somewhere gotta give us more in, info bob yeah ancient, i'm sure there's quite a few of those out there 
Let's see. I, this was pretty recent, though. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll pull it up. We can. We can use Google on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why not? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's see here. Past month. And. You know. I, We're holding our breath. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. It's. It's. I don't. I. I might need more. More time. Um. Well, maybe maybe but, if you find it, you could post the link in uh, the show notes, you know, <laughs> so people. Yeah, can right, it. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can just fast forward five minutes until he finds it. So <laughs> right, yeah, we could just we could just edit all this out and we yeah. twelve, 12 suddenly, minutes later. Yes, <laughs> suddenly uh, yes. we found. Well, I don't. I think that may have been the first SpongeBob reference. Yeah, there we go. So, I, I, I do I do that all the time. I don't know. Here we go. Is. Here we go. So this is this is from the Smithsonian website. New research suggests human-like footprints in Crete date back to 6.05 million years ago. The findings could up end scientists' understanding of human evolution, but the paper has proven controversial. Don, don, don. So you'd have to read this on the website. But if right. you Google that, um, yeah, I, and, and I thought I saw that posted. I didn't actually follow up on it, obviously, because I'm doing it right now in real time. But I did find it interesting. I was hoping I was banking on you, uh, you know, <laughs> enlightening me. No, um, and and but I I do follow pages that deal with archaeology, and they seem to be finding stuff in deep caverns um, where the water previously was at a certain elevation, and and it's now dropped, allowing researchers to go in, and they're finding uh, human relate remains sometimes in large numbers in these caves where. They're not sure if it, if they died there together or if it was a burial place for ancient humans. But yeah, we've been doing we've been doing things for a long time, especially in Africa. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and we're finding yeah new things like uh, all the time too. And I want to say maybe this is like a couple years ago now. I think it was in Texas where they found some of the oldest spear points in the world. Like for the longest time, some of the oldest spear points were I think in Germany. And then now, yeah, they're finding more and more uh, spear points that are either just as old, if not older, in other parts of the world now, too. So, yeah, we're always yeah. finding new stuff. That's pretty Here's awesome. a question. So, Josh, I know one of the – I don't know if it's controversial, but one of the things that I keep seeing now is if you find, like, a, an arrowhead, you're supposed to leave it um, and not mm -hmm. take it. Where do you where do you fall? And do you have information on that, like how, what, that, what that argument even is? Well, that that would be uh, correct, especially, um, you know, if, let's say, you find it in, like, state and federal lands, you know, you're not okay. supposed to remove, uh, you know, archaeological or cultural remains that may be left there. And um, the reason why is because of the context. And, uh, you know, some people would try to bring the artifact and bring it to someone and say, hey, look what I found. Isn't this cool? Yeah, sure, that may uh, be cool, but it's just there's not really much that we can learn from the artifact in and of itself without the context, meaning we need to know where it was. And it's not something, oh, yeah, I found it on the river beyond yonder there. You know, that's right. it's, not, that's, it's, it's out of context when you move it like that. But if, you know, archaeologists can come in, they can look at where it is, and they can also look at maybe how it's positioned, too, like is it in the ground? Is it wedged in the ground? Is it on top of the ground? Is it placed in a certain way? Those are how we can kind of draw the interpretations about it uh, from the past uh, as well. Now, we certainly encourage people, if they find something on their private property, to maybe let uh, someone know about it. But of course, obviously, if it's their private property, there's only so there's not really a whole lot we can do if, if it's on their property. Mm -hmm. But in state and federal lands, it actually is, uh, yeah, you're supposed to leave it, you know, as, as, it, as it lies. 
and um, you know, you can let some people know, know about it. And, uh, and of course, you know, for anyone who does move something, it's sometimes it, it's just like, it may not be, you know, a mischievous type sort of thing or something that they're deliberately doing to try to cause trouble. They just may simply not know. And like when I was in uh, New Mexico, for instance, there's these uh, things called field houses where, um, you know, prehistoric uh, people who have lived there, they built these uh, kind of like just small structures out of stone. And of course, a lot of them are collapsed now into these big piles of stone. And so we would want to record those, but then there'll be like some hikers that or people out there walking that will see these big piles of stone and think that's just exactly what they are big piles of stone so they'll start taking stones to build like fire rings and, and stuff like that so uh, so so they don't know that they're disturbing an archaeological archaeological remains but you know it, it's just that's one thing that yeah kind of sort of happens and uh so yeah so just simply put you know with that long spiel if you know you're out on state and federal lands if you see like yes uh our, um arrowheads or human remains or anything like that you know best leave them alone um, maybe get in touch with uh, the rangers uh, ranger stations uh, wherever you might be let them know where you uh, what you found where and where uh, you found it because if you were to pick it up and move it it's all a lot of context at that point which means there's not going to be very much we can really learn from them at, at that point if the stuff's out of context all right today good i learned know. yeah good to know good to know mm-hmm all right, Josh. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for your time today. We are going to get into the rapid fire round, but before we do, and we didn't tell you about this part, um, but before you do, before we do, uh, tell us where people can follow your hike, uh, the remainder of it, follow your podcast, and donate to um, veterans through this archaeological program. Right. Well, um, I'll start with uh, the podcast. You know, so right now, since I am doing this trek, I have taken um, a bit of a production break, so that way I could focus all my attention and being out there. I mean, obviously, I can't really arrange for interviews very easily <laughs> if I'm like out in a tent in the middle of the forest or <laughs> anything like that. So, um, production for the podcast has been put on hold for the time being. Um, but as far as uh, following my trek, I am most active on Instagram, and my Instagram handle is All Around Adventure. That's just uh, one word with no dashes. And if people want like a larger description on uh, the trek itself, uh, you can go to uh, GoFundMe.com/slash Wolverine Walk. That's where you can read about uh, the trek, and that's also where you can go to uh, make a donation. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. And this is all going to be in the show notes. Yep. Great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Elliot, do you want me rapid to get started? Rapid fire questions, yeah. Let's so, Let's Josh, uh, again, I, they are rapid fire, but it doesn't have to be a one-word answer, even though some of them are. Uh, and then you can take as much time to answer it. The actual answer can be long, but just whatever comes off the top of your head. So what okay. is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Adventure. Awesomeness. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what travel book has had the biggest influence on your life? Oh. Travel, travel book um it, it could be book okay, if okay. it's a little um, easier for you all right, right. uh mud yeah. mud sweat and tears by bear grills okay interesting interesting all right from from these options what aspects of travel has the biggest impact on your experience history architecture food or people people yeah nice i, I was wondering if you were gonna go with history being an archaeologist and everything 
well, people well, I'd, 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 I'd say probably people, and uh, that's mostly just um, reeling off of my current uh, adventure because people have been the best part of my uh, through hike so far. The trail angels and the people I've met along the way, easily the best part. Yeah, that that this question is new. Um, we just changed these, but I'm I'm calling now that we hear the word people a lot as the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just gonna guess. Uh, well, I think I, I think the first it was it was Adam that said that people are connected to history, architecture, and food. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. If we didn't have people, none of that stuff, all that other stuff, would be irrelevant. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. And uh, with a, with a short answer, tell us one thing travelers should not do. Book short layovers because if, th- <laughs> if, if things things go wrong, you do not yeah. want to be scrambling and dealing with the stress of trying to make your connecting flight. Yeah, uh, I'm going to add to that, especially during the time of COVID when you have to get PCR tests to enter different countries uh, and you need to wait for results to come in, you could end up missing your flight. Yeah, uh, if well, you leave the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quick, 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 quick short story on that. Yeah, when yeah. I when I, when I moved to England. I the first leg of my journey leaving from Detroit to Boston Logan was already delayed. So if you're delayed on the first flight in a series of flights, you know the rest of it's all going to get screwed up. Uh-huh. And so um and then from Boston Logan I was supposed to go to Reykjavik, Iceland. I um ha- when I landed in Boston Logan, I had 30 minutes to make my connecting flight. And and this had involved me having to go from the domestic terminal to the international one. And also this woman on the plane this old woman on the plane, she had her bag like in the overhead bin and she's on her tiptoes trying to get her bag. And so I, I'm like, here, let me get that for you. And so I bring the bag down and her bag is so heavy. Like I swear this woman like packed her bedroom in this or something and it collapsed straight to the floor. And I felt really bad because I dropped it. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Let me get that for you. And so I bent over to pick it up and I'm not joking, guys. The back of my shirt just ripped right down the middle. <laughs> And I had, I had 30, I had 30 minutes to get to my connection flight. So I had no time to change. So I'm going through um, the airport. I'm going through the airport. I'm going through security all with this ripped shirt on and I'm running to my gate. They're calling my name over the intercom system to tell me to report to the gate. I get there just before they close the door and I stumble on the plane Everyone else was already seated, bag stowed, everything ready to go. And here I am, this idiot, just stumbling on the plane at the very last minute. And they all, I, I was getting all these like bad looks. And now, thankfully, thankfully, my seat was in the front row of, of coach. So I was able to sit right down because I did not want to go through that gauntlet of all those angry passengers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah they'd all look oh, at you yeah. with your ripped shirt. Yeah. So, so from that point on, my advice would be to people is give yourself some time in the layovers, you know, take your time getting to, so you can take your time getting to your, uh, making your connecting flight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Uh, I had a flight a few years ago. I was going from, and this had like two or three, I think two layovers and it was from New York or Philly to Juneau. So we went to Atlanta and then from Atlanta to Seattle and then Seattle to Juneau. And our flight from Philly to Atlanta was delayed. And then our flight from Atlanta to, Ju- to Seattle was slightly delayed. So we had like a three or four hour layover in Seattle that turned into us landing about five minutes after our flight was supposed to take off. But there was a good chunk of people on the Atlanta to Seattle flight that were going to Juneau. 
and you know me and my family being seven of them and so they actually held the plane for us and then uh, my wife and i had our other family members take our bags we got off the plane as fast as we could and sprinted to the other terminal and they held it for all of us oh man that's luck right there <laughs> yeah and and it is it is lucky because there was only about 10 to 15 other people on that flight to seattle at that time or from seattle to juno and then we doubled that number nice <laughs> so very lucky very yeah. lucky <laughs> all right last question what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago just jump right on in you know i think um a lot of times uh, when it comes to experiencing things like travel and adventure or even sometimes experiencing things in life you know a lot of times we um put a lot of stuff uh, in our in our minds we put a lot of doubt in our minds um or we'll say things like okay i'll just do it tomorrow and then tomorrow will turn into next week and then next week turns into the next month and then suddenly next year and then lo and behold you're later on down your years into your life and you wonder why you never capitalized on that thing that you said that you uh, wanted to do and a lot of it is also paralysis by analysis too you know it's just you sit around waiting for the right moment for something to happen. But the reality of the situation is no matter what it is that you're trying to pursue. And I know we're talking about travel here and everything like that. It's never going to be the right time to do anything like those stars are never going to align perfectly for you to do something. And, um, and you don't need to know everything before you go out and do something. You just got to be willing to uh, make mistakes and learn um, as you go. Because, I mean, and we can even talk about, let's say, podcasting here. It's like, yeah, you can read about podcasting. You could study things about equipment, audio, all that stuff. And But really, you just got to get started. So yeah, I, I, I just, it. yeah, so I just say, just, just jump right on in. Know that you're probably not going to be very good at the beginning of it but you'll get better um, as you go and you just got to be willing to, um, you know, correct, make corrections as you go and learn as you go. So, yeah. but you just got to, you just got, you got to start first. So just jump right on in. Account for failure too, right? Account mm -hmm. for it. Include it in your plans and know that it's coming um, and, and be willing to learn off of that, those failures. Yeah. It's part of it, right? It's part of the process. Yeah, uh, ex exactly. It should, it and, and, yeah. Yeah. And it, that doesn't make you a failure. That just means that you failed. Okay. You know, exactly. so what the most, exactly. the most, the most successful people in the world can tell you about countless times that they failed at something. So, I mean, yes, like, like all, all the heavy hitters, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, you know, all of them, they could probably tell you so many ways in which they failed along the way, but, right. the, but what separates, you know, failures towards some people who have failed is whether or not they choose to keep going after they've, they've experienced failure. Yep. yep. Ability to take the punches. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. All right, Josh, thanks for your time. It was nice to finally meet you. Um, really liked hearing your story. Looking forward to following you for the rest of your trip. Good luck for the remainder for the for next few hundred miles. I'll be thinking yes. of you <laughs> as I'm sitting in my warm house in my slightly warmer state. I will be, I will be thinking about you in the cold at night. Uh, I, all the best. All right. Well, I appreciate that, fellas, and I really appreciate you guys having me. It has been great to finally uh, meet you guys and chat with you guys and uh, yeah, had a lot of fun. So I think All Around Adventure is the perfect name for Josh's platform. Yeah, so really. He's, yeah, he's been with the Marines. He's traveled through with the Peace Corps. He became an archaeologist, and now he's doing this 1,200-mile trek. He sure does get all around, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see his progress. Um, I, he should be wrapped up by this point. Yeah, right? he should be. Yeah, yeah. And he's 
Uh, you can mark my words here. He's going to be on again for sure. Definitely as a member of one of the travel roundtables. I could see him back on in the future for sure. Yes, so. yes. All right. Thank you for listening. If you love the show and want to help support our podcast, you can do so by going on Manscaped using our code. It helps us out. It helps them out. And you get some awesome products. Uh, and then if you want to help us out in another financial way, you can go to our Patreon page and support us with as little as a dollar a month. Uh, if you want to help us non-financially, you can leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on. And we appreciate you listening every week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week. 